coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I was intrigued. I, you know, when I first heard those things, I was not all of a sudden jumping into it, but I kind of, uh, you know, dug in and slowly started to learn and, and come across these ideas that felt logical on the surface. And then also as I came to dive into the physiology, I, I found that they really jived in all areas. It was something that went across species. It was something that went across biology, something that affected not only just in terms of something like mitochondrial respiration, but also our electrolyte balance, our mineral balance, blood pressure and cholesterol, and brain function, everything being directly intertwined here and making sense through this lens. And so when I, it got me interested enough to at least start to increase the carbs a bit more, more than the 50 to 100 grams I was having on the workout days uh, from white rice or something like that. And Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed bioenergetic health coach and researcher Jay Feldman. We discuss Jay's journey from low-carb keto to high-carb along with advantages of carbs as a primary fuel source, importance of CO2 for energy production, optimizing hormones, fructose's role in health, and ways to improve gut health to start feeling great. Really enjoyed my interview with Jay. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have health coach and health researcher Jay Feldman. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, if you've listened to any of my our podcast, my podcast, uh, Jay was on with uh, Dr. Dom Diagostino, um, and that was a nice, friendly debate we did for about an hour and a half. And we are going to do a part two coming up in a month or so. And I wanted to get Jay on because I had Dom on by himself, so I figured uh, this would be a good way just to you know um, let Jay sort of express his views around a lot of different topics that we touched on a little bit with with Dom. So yeah, thanks for. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. So uh, let's start with, oh, gosh, there's so many places we can start. You know, we touched with 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 Dom regarding, you know, fat burning versus glucose burning. And it's just this topic that gets uh, talked about a lot. Obviously, over the last, I don't know, let's say five, 10 years, keto, low-carb, carnivore crave have has been sort of on the rise. Um, and when I first heard you, Jay, on, on the B-Rad podcast with Brad, I was like, wow, this is like almost back to like the old school of maybe consuming more and, um, introducing more carbs, healthy carbs into your life, uh, to help with, you know, maximizing energy in the mitochondria. Um, and so I just wanted to, we were going to touch on a bunch of different topics, but what made you go down this road? I know you were low carb. You explained your story a little bit in, in the interview with Dom. Um, how long ago was that that you started introducing carbs and then and then sort of starting researching all all about um, you know the bio bioenergetic uh, viewpoint? Yeah, so it was around ten years ago when I started on low carb in various iterations, uh, maybe slightly more than ten years, and. Okay. So started with low carb and and then kind of dialed that in more and more and went into ketogenic and cyclical ketogenic diets and intermittent fasting and was 
you know, trying very committed, just as I am now, of course, to doing what I could to optimize my health. And that was always the focus and the goal and a major passion. And what I was experiencing wasn't lining up with what I was anticipating. I wasn't feeling and experiencing the vitality that I uh, was was expecting. And so, and that led, that, that presented itself as far as how I was responding to the workouts or how I felt during the workouts I was doing, uh, how well I could focus, libido, uh, all sorts of, you know, small symptoms. And another huge one was a feeling of restriction, cravings for carbohydrates, you know, always looking at the clock for when I could get that meal in, you know, when I was doing my inter intermittent fasting or even after that first meal, just always uh, felt very honestly controlled by food. Interestingly, in a lot of ways that people describe when they're, uh, when they're, when they describe like being addicted to sugar or something like that. Um, and so that led to me being open and looking for some alternative views. And I came across the bioenergetic lens, some suggestion that the sorts of you, pathways, how did you come across it? Did, did, were you introduced? I know like Ray Pete, is he like the, the, the gentleman who likes sort of started researching that? So Dr. Ray Pete has been researching health for a long time. I mean, he's 84, I want to say 84 years old and has been putting out information, you know, his newsletter for maybe 40 plus years and uh, has been talking about the issues with polyunsaturated fats for that long as well. Um, one of probably the earliest people discussing that maybe even longer than 40 years that he's been talking about the problems with polyunsaturated fats. And he has his own research has built upon uh, the research of many other people who have so, so he didn't coin the idea of, of the bioenergetic view of health. I want to say it might have been Albert St. Georgie who did that. Okay. Uh, but anyway, so I come across a handful of videos over the years kind of suggesting that there were so, – so Danny Roddy is another um, – he is a major uh, person in the bioenergetic view who also is a fan of Ray Pete's work and has a lot of his own work and books and things and – uh, he, I came across a video tour of, of his, and I think that was part of what had start off that started off that journey. And he was talking about things that I never even considered when it came to a diet. He was, you know, there was, there was this idea that I remember I was, um, he had a video out talking about part of the issues with using fats for fuel. And he talked about how there's a lack of carbon dioxide production and he talked about all these things going on in, in terms of mitochondrial respiration. And there were things that I had never even considered. You know, when you're listening to these things, or, or at least for a lot of people, I know it was this way for myself, when you're listening to these things in terms of low carb, it, it's painted as like the obvious choice, of course, I, I get that. And, and you know, you try to, to create a, a picture where it's simplified. And so you have all these narratives that Sugar increases insulin, which causes diabetes. Sugar is inherently toxic and poisonous. And we've created this whole, th this whole narrative. We've created a villain in, in sugar and carbohydrates and put it in terms of evolution. You know, of course, we wouldn't have had sugar available and we would have been going through periods of fasting. And this is kind of the natural way that things were, which I think there's a lot of assumptions built into there. But there, it was so... I guess in some ways surface level, but so just uh, associative where it's like carbo carbohydrates equal insulin resistance and diabetes, carbohydrates equal neurodegenerative conditions, just very, very much in that way. And I had never dug in deeper than that. And so this was the first kind of brush with, with some real in-depth physiology um, as far as the underpinnings of, of different diets and, and whether we should be 
relying on fats or carbs as our primary fuels or how, how those fit in together. And so I was intrigued. I, you know, when I first heard those things, I was not all of a sudden jumping into it, but I kind of, uh, you know, dug in and slowly started to learn and, and come across these ideas that felt logical on the surface. And then also as I came to dive into the physiology, I, I found that they really jived in all areas. It was something that went across species. It was something that went across biology, something that affected not only just in terms of something like mitochondrial respiration, but also our electrolyte balance, our mineral balance, blood pressure and cholesterol, and brain function, everything being directly intertwined here and making sense through this lens. And so when I, it got me interested enough to at least start to increase the carbs a bit more, more than the 50 to hundred grams I was having on the workout days uh, from white rice or something like that. And so when I first did it, I was still at a lot of fear of fructose. I know this is something we'll probably talk about today's fructose. And so I still was not open to that idea, but I was at least open to the idea of increasing starches, increasing glucose through white rice and plantains, and things like that. And so that's what I did. And that, that was kind of the starting place and eventually kind of grew from there. And I did end up introducing fructose containing foods like fruits and dried fruits and juices, which actually ended up feeling way better than when I was relying solely on the starches for my carbohydrate sources and mm -hmm. uh, led to a lot of benefits when I shifted away from so being so heavy on the starches. Um, but yeah, it completely changed the way I viewed health and also the way that I felt. It was the first time where in my whole life, because this even prior to low carb, I was still trying to be very healthy and watching, you know, trying to keep the calories down and trying to, you know, eat at that point, it was whole grains and nuts and seeds, although that continued through paleo and everything. But it was the first time where I actually felt freedom from the food I was eating, where I didn't feel like I was constantly weighed down by restriction and cravings. It was also the first time where I really was able to identify clear differences throughout the day in terms of how I felt and how that related to the foods that I was eating. And yeah, it was something that I could really feel and actually tell how different my physiology was functioning and how that led to differences in how well I was sleeping or my skin health or libido or focus energy at the gym and, and responses to energy or responses to workouts, being able to build muscle way easier. You know, I think mm. it would have been a, I spent so many years working out really hard and probably could have had some uh, much quicker results from that at, in uh, those times. But anyway, that was, that yeah. was kind of what led me through uh, down this path. Yeah. I was just curious because you are right in the sense that the narrative of becoming a fat burner. I mean, you hear that and, and I'm victim, not victim. And I've, I've helped people. I've coached people getting to that point or helping people, you know, maybe titrate their carbs down and carbs have been sort of the villain and insulin has been the villain. And, you know, we have all these, now we have continuous glucose monitors and things like that. And, you know, Dr. Jason Fung has done a lot in this area. I've had him on the podcast and, you know, with people who are diabetic and, I'm sure you have opinions about what is the true cause, what you, what you think is the true cause of diabetes. I guess, what, what would you say to someone that's like, oh, you know, you know, I, you know, I went to start a fasting and, and got these unbelievable results and my, all, you know, all my blood levels got back to normal and, you know, my diabetes went away type two. Um, what are your thoughts around that? And what, what, what are you, what is your reasoning behind, um, perhaps, um, the cause of diabetes? So there are a handful of things that go on when we switch to a lower carb or ketogenic or fasting type protocol. 
And some of them are really great. So for one is we end up removing a lot of harmful foods. And that alone, I think, is responsible for a lot of benefits. I think the foods within the standard American diet are causing a ton of problems, which we see, right? That's very right. clearly evident. And so we obviously are removing a ton of those of those foods when we do that. But I don't think that's the only thing. I think there are a couple other factors that are particularly relevant when it comes to shifting toward this type of approach. And so one is is the gut. So gut health, I think we have an epidemic of gut health disorders and issues. And that's partially because our gut is just representative of what's going on in our physiology. If we have diabetes or obesity, if we have a neurodegenerative state, if we have an autoimmune state, there's going to be things going on the vast majority of the time in the gut that are not ideal. And when we feed an overgrowth of bacteria or fungus or all sorts of, of potential issues going on in the gut with fibrous carbohydrates, whether it's raw vegetables or whole grains or, you know, and it, most of the carbohydrates that the standard American diet includes, that's going to cause a lot of problems. And so removing those things, removing anything that's going to be reaching the, the farther down parts, the large intestine uh, is going to lead to a lot of relief. And so I think that's a huge component and has been shown to be a huge component when it comes to the benefits of ketogenic diets and low carb diets and fasting, where there's a, a compound called endotoxin, which is also called lipopolysaccharide. It's a product of certain types of bacteria. And this is, it's an extremely toxic uh, bacterial product. Uh, and it wreaks havoc in terms of our ability to produce energy in, in the mitochondria. And to the point that it causes death in people who are septic and people who have these systemic uh, infections. And lower grade, not death levels, but lower grade endotoxemia, which just, just means lower grade levels of endotoxin, are found in all of these different states like obesity and diabetes and, and on from there. And so when is there we- a way, Is there a way to met, like, I know like with gut health, like you can do like poop samples or things like that. Like, like is there a way to measure endotoxin? Or is there that just, are, okay. There are a few markers that are used in the research, but they aren't commercially available. Okay. Uh, and it's not measuring the endotoxin because the endotoxin itself in the blood is going to vary a lot. If you just had a meal, if, if you're at rest and maybe if there's enough data gathered on that at some point, we can use that as a marker. But instead, what they tend to use are markers of response to endotoxin. So endotoxin will lead to the activity of all these different inflammatory uh, pathways, some of which are unique to it. And so you can use those as indicators of if there's elevated endotoxin, but they can also be caused by other inflammatory drivers. So they're not so unique or specific. And they, again, they don't tend to be uh, available commercially uh, for us to to test, unfortunately, but ideally in the future. Uh, but yeah, so, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's fine. And, and so that's a huge component that we're relieved of. And just as an example, to, to show, to demonstrate how much of an impact this has, uh, there are studies looking at a ketogenic diet in mice that have epileptic seizures, and they're able to do a fecal microbial transplant where they basically transplant the microbiome from those on a ketogenic diet to those that are not on a ketogenic diet. And it has the same seizure protecting effects without putting those normal rats on a rats or mice. I don't remember on a ketogenic diet. And that's just an individual example that just shows the power of the gut in and how much it's benefited by these low carb diets. But the point I'm sure we'll get to is we can have those same benefits and relieve our gut health issues without removing all carbohydrates. And I would prefer to go that route because I think there's a cost to just throwing out all the carbs. Uh, so that's one main area of benefit. The other is, especially if you look at type two diabetes or an insulin resistant state, 
metabolic syndrome, which is underpinning a lot of different disease processes. Those are states where we're not effectively using the glucose that's coming in well enough and we're not producing energy from it very well. And so we end up with one thing that happens is that leads, leads to a lot of fat production because we're not actually converting the food to energy. It leads to a handful of other stress processes as well. But in that state, if we are not having the energy available because we can't uh, burn, so to speak, the carbohydrates well for energy, and then we take out the carbs and just rely on fat and ketones, we're going to be much better off. Mm. We don't have to keep trying to force it through these kind of broken pathways that we can fix. And so that's the other point is we have this relief from poor glucose oxidation. Of course, if we look at someone who has type 2 diabetes, that's a super clear uh, feature there. And maybe we'll talk about that next as far as what's causing that. But so when we shift away from the carbs, we avoid that problem. We don't actually fix the problem. And so avoiding it can lead to a ton of benefits. We're going to be way better off. Of course, we're going to see better blood markers and potentially weight loss, all sorts of things between the gut and relieving the poor carb metabolism. But I think that we can accomplish both of those things without uh, without just throwing out the carbs and in a process in a way that I think will work much better long-term. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you think about when people throw, just say carbs, I mean, it's such a broad way of saying it. There's so many different types and most of it people are having are, you know, processed and grains and corn and soy. Um, what would you say? Let, let, let's, let's dive into some of the advantages of why carbs are such a good fuel source for the body as opposed to fat, because I think the narrative has always been going towards, you know, fat, using fat for fuel and getting insulin levels down. Um, what let's go, let's say top three reasons why carbs are a better fuel source than fats. So I would probably phrase it as carbs are an extremely important fuel source. And, but I wouldn't say, they're universally better just in that there are certain situations where car, uh, where fats are a great fuel source. And so the kind of context I would put it in is that when we need to produce a lot of ATP, a lot of energy very efficiently, we need carbohydrates. Those are going to be our, our ideal option. We can also use ketones, but we can't, fat is not going to be the option there. And just as an example, this is why our brains don't use fats as a fuel. Uh, they, our brains are very sensitive to oxidative stress. They need, they very high energy demands, you know, as much as 20 to 25% of our total energy demands are used by our brain, uh, which is, you know, just a couple of pounds, you know, just a tiny percentage of our total body weight. So super high energy demands and our brains can't use those fats for fuel. And uh, that's because of, of this reason. And so, but on the other hand, there are situations where we don't need super high amounts of ATP produced in a super, uh, in a super efficient way. And so that would be, for example, our muscles at rest. So at rest, our muscular energetic needs are going to be rather low. And I think that's a perfect situation where we want to use some fats there. And this is part of why I don't suggest a super low fat diet either. I think that comes with, with its own issues. And instead, I would say that we want to have a combination of both that's going to allow for the carbohydrates for the areas that need those super high uh, efficiency fuels like our brain and liver kidneys and also our muscles when they're super active and uh, needing to you know be very explosive and then we also want to have some fat available so we can a spare those carbs for those other areas because if we just have carbs and our muscles take up all those carbs then we're going to be running out of carbohydrates really quick and there's not going to be much left for our brain so that's why i'd recommend having some fats as well and those having their place in terms of something like the muscles at rest which is a big sink of, of fuel and energy disposal so 
that's kind of the perspective that I think of it through. Mm-hmm. And, but of course there are details here as far as why exactly this is happening and the places that I think are best to look at those are uh, what's going on in terms of the mitochondria, what's going on in terms of maybe the blood sugar and the hormones, which I think are all uh, directly related. Let's touch on CO2. I think this is an interesting, because uh, you, you, you want your cells to produce more CO2 to increase oxygen use and energy production, right? Yeah. So CO2 is normally thought of as a waste product of metabolism of mitochondrial respiration. And, uh, but in reality, it's a super important uh, factor for allowing our cells to take up oxygen. So oxygen is carried on a protein called hemoglobin. And there's a couple of situations that allow for the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. And so at the cells, if we don't have enough carbon dioxide there, the hemoglobin can't give the cell the oxygen. It won't let go of the oxygen unless it will exchange it for carbon dioxide. This is called the Bohr effect. And I'm kind of simplifying it, but this yeah, is... Yeah, that's that's fine. We can... <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I, and I give you a lot of credit because if you, if you look at all your, re, you know, the research you've done, I mean, it, it, you really got to dig into this stuff. Um, but anyways, we can keep it. So, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So... So if our tissues are not producing the enough carbon dioxide, they can't take up the oxygen from hemoglobin. And so that's a, a huge driver of oxygenation and it's a very sensitive system. So small changes in, in local carbon dioxide availability is going to affect whether those cells are effectively getting the oxygen. And that's if the oxygen is needed for us to produce energy for, for the mitochondria to function. And so uh, when we aren't producing enough CO2, it it coincides with a state where we're not using a lot of oxygen, we're not respiring a lot in the cells, we're not producing a lot of energy. And when we look at fat versus carbohydrate metabolism, it's one very key clear difference is that carbohydrate metabolism, if you're looking at the same rate of respiration, will produce 50% more CO2, uh, 50% more carbon dioxide, which is, of course, a large amount, large percentage. The other thing to consider is that the rates normally are different too, and carbohydrate metabolism normally occurs at a much faster rate, so it would be even higher than 50%. So that's one aspect of a difference between the rest, like the mitochondrial oxidation of, of carbs and fats. Okay, so carb oxidation consumes 50% less water and generates 50% more carbon dioxide than the oxidation of fat. Right. Correct. Okay. And, and this, um, this is obviously hugely important for everybody, but obviously athletes trying to create energy, right? Definitely. Yeah. This, again, this isn't something that's going to be coming into play at a muscle at rest. It doesn't need huge amounts of oxygen, but when you're, and part of it gets a little complex when we're talking about an intense exercise, because at that point we have a lot of stress systems activating that allow for all these backup pathways. We've got our adrenaline going, which is going to force oxidation. Uh, another factor is the vasodilation and the uh, circulation. And so carbon dioxide is the primary vasodilator as well. That keeps the, the blood vessels open to allow for good circulation and blood flow. But if we're in a stress state where we need the muscles to work and we are, are not producing as much carbon dioxide, we'll get nitric oxide to be produced as that backup, uh, which helps with the vasodilation. So there's all sorts of backup pathways that help us in a stress state, but uh, those are just ideally reserved for, for important situations when we need some extra energy. Okay. Got it. And then let's touch on uh, hormone optimization. Um, because you're seeing it somewhat a little bit in the keto space where, you know, over time, you know, over maybe a longer period of time, you're seeing 
perhaps um, a downregulation of thyroid. Um, what are some of the things that come into play when it comes to um, hormone optimization and and implementing some type of carb or glucose source? Yeah, when we're looking at hormones, the hormones are just signals, just messengers that are trying to dictate the underlying state of our body. If we need more sodium, if we need more glucose, if we need more fat, I mean, all sorts of different things are going on in different areas and hormones are those signals. And so it can be really helpful to look at what's happening with hormones as a reflection of the kind of state that our bodies are in. So when we're utilizing carbohydrates for fuel, another difference is, you know, I was talking about the efficiency of, of ATP production, and this comes down to the NAD to NADH ratios. It comes down to the production of reactive oxygen species, handful of different factors that are happening there. And the, we'll see shifts in hormones when we're, when we don't have the carbohydrates available. And these shifts in hormones are really important because they allow us to kick in these backup pathways to provide, for example, ketones and also to provide enough fat release. And all of these are, again, signals of what's going on in our environment. So if we are in an environment, if we take the extreme of starvation, if we take the extreme where there's no fuel coming in, and we, of course, that means no carbohydrates coming in either, we have to rely on our stored fuel, we have to rely on fats. And then we also will tend to kick in ketone production. And the reason for that is because the main way that we're going to produce glucose, we can get a little bit from the glycerol backbone of, of um, triglycerides, but most of it will have to come from amino acids, from protein. And we don't want to break down our muscle to produce all this glucose. That's obviously a, a major cost. That wouldn't be a, a great thing. We would lose our muscle mass really quickly. Mm -hmm. So instead, we make up for some of our glucose needs with ketones. All of these processes, all of these things that have gone on you know, and have been built into our physiology to help us survive in stressful states, to help us survive in famines and starvations, uh, to help us survive when there's not carbohydrates available or not fats available, all sorts of those things have all, again, they've been baked into our physiology and then get, get signaled by hormones. So some of the main hormones that will do this will be what are categorized as the stress hormones, which uh, normally will involve glucagon, adrenaline, or epinephrine, and cortisol. And normally when we say stress, somebody's thinking psychological stress, right? I'm stressed out. Everybody knows cortisol is the stress hormone, but being psychologically stressed is not the only thing that causes these hormones to be produced. Anytime we're under physiological stress, where we're at a deficit of how much energy we have available, it'll kick in these, these hormones. So that means if we're going to go for a run, you know, we're starting to run and our energy is running low, it'll kick on these hormones. If we go for a long time without eating, it'll kick on these hormones. Another factor is our blood sugar. And so if our blood sugar starts to drop too low, it'll kick on these hormones. And that's our blood sugar is where our glucose availability is, is going to be uh, evaluated. If there's low blood sugar, that means our brain doesn't have enough fuel. It means that other areas of our bodies don't have the, the glucose available. This can be disastrous. So we have these stress hormones that kick up, that increase our, our blood sugar. And that's a... Again, a really great thing to have, biologically necessary, helps us survive. Uh, but in the process, it also signals what's going on in our environment. And so if we're in a really stressful environment and our bodies are trying to survive as long as possible, they want to conserve as much energy as they can for the survival, for the stress. So if we're doing lots of running, we're signaling to our bodies that we're going to be doing a lot of running. Let's save our energy. Let's not waste it on other processes right now because we've got a lot of running to do. Uh, the same thing would happen if we're not eating for a while, if we're fasting for a long time, 
all these things are going to basically turn down what's called our basal metabolic rate, although this, there's some issues with measuring it, but it turns down our metabolic rate, turns, out, turns down how much energy we're using in case, uh, basically because we're signaling to our bodies that there's consistent stress that we need to save that energy for. And the way that our bodies do this, the way that our bodies signal this is through these hormones. So as we have elevated levels of these stress hormones over time, this will create cascading effects that allow for us to turn down our metabolism. One of those is happening through thyroid hormones. So these stress hormones, and it, it varies a little bit between each one, but will turn down the production of our thyroid hormones. They'll also turn down the conversion of the inactive to the active thyroid hormone. And the thyroid is our main regulator of our metabolism, and it has effects everywhere. It has effects in terms of our skin, has effects in terms of our gut, in all different areas of our gut, has effects in terms of our reproductive hormone production. Uh, it, there's a, uh, in order to produce any steroid hormone, we have to bring cholesterol into the mitochondria. That happens via a protein called the star protein. And thyroid is very important for activating that protein, increasing that protein activity. So, and so these stress hormones, if we're, if we're under a state where we're chronically activating them, it will signal to turn down our thyroid activity through these different means, turn down our reproductive activity, turn down our digestive activity, all these things to basically turn us on to kind of like a low battery mode to conserve our energy so that we have it to deal with the future stress. And so that's the situation that I would argue that we create when we're doing long-term ketogenic diets, long-term fasting, uh, or just especially nowadays in the, in the kind of biohacking space, when we're layering all these different stresses on each other, we're doing those things. And then we're also doing these intense exercise sessions. We're also doing uh, cold, you know, thermogenesis. We're also adding saunas. Hey, don't be, don't be knocking on cold. <laughs> That'll be a whole nother. I, I do love cold plunging, but well, anyways. And I'm not saying right, that no, these are inherently problematic, right? I mean, I think exercise is great, right. but we want to be aware of what we're signaling, how we're doing it. And, and it's the, and I, I and, and you know, I, and I, and I always talk about, they're all stressors, right? So like, if you're stacking them, you know, if you're doing calorie restriction and you're stacking all these other things on top of each other, it can add up over time. And like you were mentioning, it can take a toll on thyroid. Um, and hypothyroidism is, is something that I think people get sort of pushed under the rug, but probably a lot of people have it. And they don't realize they have it. Yeah. Even, I mean, the diagnosis of hypothyroidism is, is super high. And even then, I think so much of it is, is kind of undiagnosed. The ranges of, of hormones that are looked at, which first off, normally only TSH is looked at, and the ranges for it are way off, I would say, compared to what's optimal and what the research suggests is optimal. What would what, you know off the top of your head, like as far as like free T3 and free T4 and TSH, do you know what, do you have a, like what would be optimal? I'm just curious. So for TSH, I would say that we want to see it under two. And ideally we're closer to around one or maybe a little bit under one, okay. but under two is, is really the kind of limit I would have. And that doesn't mean if we're at 2.2 or 2.5, that we have severe hypothyroidism, we need to, go, need to go take medication or anything like that, but it does suggest an underactive thyroid, but we have to be careful because I was saying before how the stress hormones turn down our thyroid activity. One of the ways they do that, especially cortisol is by turning down TSH. So you can have a TSH of zero or one or something very low, but it's actually being turned down by cortisol. So that's part of the reason why we can't just look at TSH. Uh, but we do want to look at a handful of markers. So TSH would be an important one. We also want to look at cholesterol. A lot of times high total cholesterol, high LDL can be related to hypothyroidism. And that relationship was known 
since the very early 1900s, I don't want to say it's like 1906 or something, I have a paper describing that. And I used to use thyroid, uh, like desiccated thyroid as a way to lower cholesterol. It's not the only cause, of course, there's, you know, these are intricate situations, but high cholesterol can be another sign of hypothyroidism. And then yes, looking at T3 and T4 can be helpful. Looking at reverse T3 can be helpful as well. So normally for free T3, I would say the ideal range is at least 3.0 or up. And I want to say that's picograms per... Yeah, PG mLs per ml. Yeah, per milliliter. Yeah. I don't remember. Off the top of my head, I don't remember the free T4 range. Um, okay. I'm thinking like, I'm looking right now, 1.4 to 1.8 free T4 is what I see for functional, but... Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But, I, I, but yeah. I also think it's important for people to get like get these measured. I think sometimes they get mm -hmm. overlooked um, because like you mentioned, thyroid, gosh, I mean, they read, they regulate all like so many bodily functions, respiration, heart rate, muscle strength, body temperature, mm -hmm. menstrual cycles in women, <laughs> you know, conversion of yeah. cholesterol. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's involved in everything. I mean, it's a huge factor. It's very highly correlated with SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because low thyroid activity will slow our motility. So our, the food's moving very slow through our intestines and the bacteria grow higher and higher. It also affects our bile release and our stomach acid production. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's involved in nearly every single disease process and both and every aspect of health too. So it's a huge one. And another important factor to look at is, is reverse T3 when we're talking about blood labs. And that's because if we are inhibiting the conversion from the inactive T4 to the active T3, it will instead be converted to reverse T3. So if reverse T3 is elevated, that's a sign of, of low conversion or conversion issue, which is also a situation of, of hypothyroidism where you're not getting enough of the active hormone. And, and normally for that one, anything above 17. So if you're looking at like 18 or higher, I would start to look at that as, as elevated as, as, uh, above where we'd want it. Okay. And like you mentioned, high cholesterol, I mean, with obviously the keto carnivore movement becoming such a craze, I think cholesterol, having high cholesterol was never really talked about being associated with low thyroid function and perhaps high levels of cortisol, right? Yeah. Not, yeah, not recently for sure. Yeah. Uh, not in the, in yeah. that low carb space. And I think right. that's, yeah. And, and yeah, I know for my, my, for myself, I saw my cholesterol come down a hundred points when I brought carbs back in and shifted out of keto and uh, saw the carbs come up. And again, I'm not one of those people who's saying that, you know, high cholesterol causes heart disease or anything right. that, that simple. I'm not, but instead I am looking at it as a marker of what's going on metabolically. And, uh, and I think it's very parallel I, that in the low carb space, we've recognized that high cholesterol might be a sign of something going on, but it's also an incredibly important healing factor. It's uh, super important for immune function and super protective. It's also right. a precursor for hormones. I mean, it's a super, super essential, important, uh, compound. And so or molecule. And so we've recognized that high cholesterol and heart disease, we're looking at association. We're not looking at causation there. We don't blame the firemen for a fire, but then we've done that same thing when it comes to insulin resistance and diabetes. These are states where you see high glucose and high insulin. And I would say that this is, those are responses to an underlying problem. They're actually protective responses that we want to happen, right? Our bodies are, are super intelligent. They're, they're not adapting in a in a stupid way that we need to just go in and fix because we know better there's a, a very important reason why we've done the, why our bodies do that and we don't want to blame the glucose and insulin we don't want to assume that just because glucose and insulin are high in those early stages of diabetes i mean later on 
insulin, you know, you lose your capacity to produce insulin. But uh, just because that's the case doesn't mean that those are causing that state. Gotcha. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, so there could be, there could be some, um, gosh, some sort of correlation between low carb diets, decreasing T3 levels, increasing free T4 and reverse T3 levels. Um, and yeah, okay. Free T4 is, I I would say free T4 is normally not high, but normally low free T3 and high reverse T, uh, reverse T3. Yeah. And normally I will say people coming from low carb, I see TSH very low, but it tends to be suppressed, tends to be suppressed by the stress hormones. You tend to see high morning cortisol. You tend to see high morning glucose. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about fructose. It's our favorite topic here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I had, uh, Dr. William, well, gosh, I've had Dr. William Davis, who was more, um, that's grain brain. He he wrote Mm. the book, grain brain. Um, I've had, uh, Richard Johnson and, um, you know, I think that, and I always thought, you know, and you even hear like Dr. Jason Fung individuals talk about fructose is sort of the, 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 the devil, the demon in the sense that you store it in the liver. Um, and you might not get like an, in, a glucose response from it. Right. Or, you know, insulin response from, from fructose, but you always hear that you shouldn't be drinking tons and tons of, you know, at orange juice or things like that. You you're better off maybe eating it. So let's talk about fructose's role in the body and how it can actually potentially be beneficial. Yeah. So it has been certainly painted as as even more of a villain than just even sugar or carbs as a whole. And part of that comes down to, so, so there's a couple of things that happen. For one, of course, fructose can go through a pathway called de novo lipogenesis and lead to the production of fat. Fructose also can lead to a situation where you've increased uric acid, which I know is, is Dr. Rick Johnson's uh, concerns or concern. But just because it can do those things doesn't mean it does in normal physiological contexts. And there's, you know, I've spent, you know, we were talking about this before. I've got a couple of podcast episodes actually going through the research and explaining that these things don't actually happen in normal human context, in normal consumption of even considerable amounts of, of fructose, but they will happen when you inject it in massive amounts or when you give it to rats. And there's all sorts of reasons for this in terms of the issues or, or differences between human livers and rat livers and our capacity for, for carbohydrate and carbohydrate storage and utilization. There's the gut is a huge mediating factor as well, where when you give fructose alone, it doesn't get absorbed very well. It actually needs uh, glucose with it to be absorbed very well. And this is something that happens in any source of fructose that we would get in our environment. It's always paired with glucose. Um, the vast majority of, fruit, of fruits are about 50-50 between glucose and fructose. Uh, and that includes, you know, a lot of them will have sucrose as well, which is also 50-50 glucose fructose. And there's some variation in there in that range, but they always come with a good amount of glucose in there to help with their absorption and for a handful of other reasons. And so sure. I was just, I was just going to say, you know, you hear a lot that like for hibernation purposes, a lot of animals just stocked up on like pounds and pounds of, of fruit to, to put on fat for the, for the winter so they can hibernate. What are your thoughts around that? Um, and now you're starting to see it a little bit in the carnivore space with, you know, Dr. Saladino and, and carnivore Aurelius, who's, you know, sort of just 
writes blogs and stuff. I know you've written on his blog before, but you know, adding in fruit to like a meat-based diet. And this is something that we talked about off offline, but I've been adding in fruit to my diet just to see how I perform in the gym and um uh you know see, see how my blood levels are and I'm sort of doing a self-experimentation myself. Um so I'm uh, I'm just curious. That's why I was wanted to bring up fructose and its role. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's some recognition that that in in normal context it shouldn't be a problem and and in the context of giving pure fructose it's not going to be digested you lead to this huge endotoxin production these are things that are parsed out in the research where then they if they do the same thing but they give an antibiotic so there's no endotoxin production it, there's no issue there's no de novo lipogenesis or, uh, so so there's there's a lot of reasons i think when we dig through the research that we don't need to be uniquely concerned about fructose uh, but you're you're right in that what it does do is it does go directly to the liver and it doesn't create as much of an insulin spike. And then what the liver does is it converts that fructose to, well, it does a few things with it. So one, it can use it to produce energy for to, to fill whatever energy needs it has. It can convert it to glycogen to store to then release later. Or it can convert it directly to glucose or to lactate and release both of those out as fuels that the brain can use and muscles and whatnot. Uh, or it can store it as fat. But again, that's something that's normally happening in about 1% of the fructose coming in in a normal diet. And even then you always have flux through the fat stores. You end up storing fat that's taken in as well. And you know, there's always, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be increasing the fat stores. Uh, so it can actually have a very protective effect because it serves that role as, as a fuel. And so it's been, uh, there's a handful of things that are really interesting. For one, it increases alcohol clearance in the liver. It also has been shown to protect against various like hepatotoxic, so like liver toxic agents. And both of these being uh, uh, a pr product of- What about mineral retention? Sorry to interrupt you. Because I think that can be an issue. And a lot of people are, you know, are especially on low carb, um, are not getting enough minerals um, and they're, they're sweating them out. Um, fructose can actually enhance mineral retention. Is this true? Yeah, yeah. Well, and so, and so carbohydrates is a whole can. Yeah. And then also fructose uniquely. Yeah, uh, it does help increase mineral retention. Sorry to interrupt you there. I just, I just, I just was thinking that um, I, I was just looking at an article by Carnivore Aurelius, and he was talking about how um, sugar is anti-stress. What, what, mm. what does he mean? Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. yeah. And so that's when I was talking earlier about really feeling differences in, in how I, how I've responded to food. And this was this idea that carbohydrates turn off our stress response was something that was so far in left field for me or out of left field. It was just a crazy idea and was life-changing, absolutely life-changing. So we were talking earlier about how these stress hormones are largely uh, dependent or regulated based upon blood sugar. And so any time blood sugar, and I, I should really say an energy deficit. So anytime there's lack of fuel leading to a lack of energy or using too much energy, it'll lead to the release of these stress hormones. Anytime our blood sugar is dipping, it'll lead to the release of these stress hormones. And so the most powerful way to turn off these stress hormones, normally what we're told to do is do some deep breathing, take some magnesium, whatever it is, not to say those things aren't helpful, but in terms of the actual physiology, the best way to turn off those stress hormones is providing carbohydrates, especially quick digesting ones that'll, that'll get to the, the blood uh, readily and turn down uh, immediately the glucagon, adrenaline and cortisol. And so glucose and fructose are really, really effective at doing that. And that was, it's something that, you know, people talk about feeling hangry. A lot of times that's caused by these sort of uh, stress hormone responses due to low blood sugar, uh, due to low fuel, due to low energy. And 
yeah, it, it's uh, it's amazing how much that can shift your mood. Of course, people know how they feel when they're feeling hangry, but uh, yeah, it can shift your mood, your energy, all of that. Um, and can fructose also help restore proper glucose metabolism? So there's, yes, it, it actually can a help with the blood sugar response. So as you were saying earlier, because it doesn't cause a release of insulin and instead goes to the liver and then gets repackaged and sent out in smaller amounts over time, you have a, a more steady, uh, blood sugar response and you get less of the dipping crash, which can be. Uh, really helpful for for that, but also you do see in in studies where they look at just glucose versus glucose with fructose that you get better utilization of the carbohydrate. Okay, I'm sure a lot of people are hearing this. They're like, "Wow, this is great! I can just have sugar." <laughs> I guess you know, going back to the question I asked you, what would you say? You know, because obviously we said insulin is getting sort of a bad rap. Carbs have gotten a bad rap. You know, obviously sugar. Um, who is the blame? I, I know, I think I know you're going to say it's proper glucose, uh, oxidation, right. Being able to restore that. Um, what, wh what is the blame if you were going to say for someone who's maybe type two diabetic, and this is something that has come, come, um, you know, over the years, maybe over the decades that someone's become diabetic, what would you say the biggest sort of villains are then if they're not insulin and if they're not sugar, um, what are, yeah. Yeah, so part of it, to, to, to get to those villains, we have to first identify that problem, right? And so I would point to that problem being proper, efficient mitochondrial respiration. Part of that involves the availability of, of fuel, the availability of fats, and the availability of carbs. But it also involves a lot more than that. And so we know that we have a mitochondrial respiration problem. We know that as people are aging, their ability to produce ATP drops dramatically. We know that this is also something that you see throughout all these different chronic health conditions. It's very clear when it looks when we look at type 2 diabetes, where you see an inability to properly convert that glucose all the way down through glycolysis and then the Krebs cycle and then the electron transport chain. Uh, instead, you end up just going through glycolysis and you have a lot of fat oxidation to make up for it. We're basically in, in like a stress metabolism state, very similar to cancer metabolism. And we see this in, in what's going on in the brain and neurodegenerative states. This is part of why ketones are so helpful in those cases. But what we're seeing is, is at this underlying point, we're seeing blocked or inefficient metabolism, uh, blocking the capacity to properly uh, convert the fuel to energy. So we end up in this stress metabolism. And there are a lot of different factors that go into making sure that those things are running properly and fixing that. One of the biggest ones that I think a lot of people are pointing to, uh, but not necessarily pointing as, as deep as they could as far as the reasons why are the polyunsaturated fats. So everyone's pointing at the seed oils, those omega-6s, they're a major problem. And yes, they trigger the inflammation pathways and, and things like that with their metabolites, but they also directly impair our ability to properly produce energy. And, and part of the way that th there's a couple of ways that they do this. One of, I would say the most important is that they are actually used as structure. They get integrated into the cellular structure and in the mitochondria, the production of energy occurs at at the inner mitochondrial membrane. And when we have more of the unsaturated fats there, it leads to a very porous uh, membrane that, that protons can flux through. And so it leads to very inefficient energy production. So if you think of like a hydroelectric dam, where you have like a, all this water flowing through like a wheel sort of thing that's, that's producing energy, 
if that's held in by a dam and that dam has a bunch of holes in it and the water's leaking through, you have much less power to go through the, the, the actual hydroelectric uh, power producing piece. And so that's kind of what's happening with the unsaturated fats, among other things. There's, there's a handful of reasons, but I would say though that's one of the biggest that's causing issues with energy production. There's a handful of others as well. So there's a ton of nutrients involved with producing energy. This is one of the main reasons why we need the various B vitamins, uh, magnesium and zinc and all sorts of, of different vitamins and minerals that are involved in these steps. If we don't have enough of them, it's going to create uh, kind of jams here. It's going to prevent our ability to con- you know convert all the way down this chain to produce enough energy. And that is part of why you can see such benefits for certain B vitamins like niacinamide, which is B3, or, or vitamin B1 in some of these insulin-resistant states is because they not only are they necessary for the energy production, but they also help to reverse a lot of the, the negative effects. So nutrients are a huge one. And then there's a handful, more than a handful, there's a ton of factors that are kind of more external, like the PUFA, the polyunsaturated fats that block the efficient respiration. One of the ones that we talked about was endotoxin that we were discussing, but there's a handful of other bacterial toxins that can get produced in our guts or fungal toxins as well. And all of these, the reason why they're toxic is because they directly block our ability to efficiently respire, to efficiently produce energy, normally at different points along the electron transport chain. Um, in addition to direct effects there, they also then lead to the to various inflammatory metabolites and all sorts of uh, oxidative stress agents or different um, inflammatory products, like even nitric oxide, for example, create blocks at different points along energy production. So anything that's stimulating an inflamed oxidative stress sort of state is going to block energy production. Again, that includes the bacterial issues. It also is going to include heavy metal exposure and various pesticides. It's also potentially going to include some EMFs. Um, mm-hmm. It's you know ionizing radiation and things like that. There's you know it's we still want to be looking at all these factors in our environment, but I think it's really key that we're looking at it in terms of how they're affecting our ability to produce energy in the mitochondria and fixing that problem, fixing that underlying problem, as opposed to saying, well, we can't produce energy. So let's just not take in carbs anymore. Like we can't use them well. So let's just forego the carbs. Yeah, no, I I get that. So some of the things just to summarize that you mentioned were particular nutrient deficiencies, um, the overconsumption of vegetable oils, Mm -hmm. uh, gut health, obviously was a big one you mentioned at the top of the show. Um, and then possibly environmental factors. Um, and I think with the one, these things that you mentioned, all of these to some degree are, other than maybe nutrient deficiencies, are tough to measure, right? Like, I mean, to some degree, like environmental factors, I know people who have gotten mold toxicity and like they've, this has been like a decade long search of trying to figure out what was wrong with them. And I've had people on the podcast who have, who've had mold to- toxicities and it's just like this ever, la- ever ending you know, sort of, I don't know, puzzle to try to fix. Um, so it's interesting. And perhaps that's part of the reason why we are blaming maybe things that don't, shouldn't take the blame. And the reason we're blaming maybe let's just say carbs or sugar is it's sort of easier to measure and to, to sort of break down and understand why that, or perhaps I guess it's just easier to measure so we can just put the blame on it as opposed to maybe some of these other things that you mentioned, like even like gut health, which can be somewhat of a 
trivial thing to measure and, and understand what's going on. And it's a, it's a pretty effective bandaid, I would say, removing the carbs. People right. tend to feel good pretty quickly and in the short term, you know, it tends to be effective. And I'm not even saying that there's not a place for reducing carb intake to an extent. Sure. But I would only do that in the context, A, of only reducing it so much, but then B, you know, shifting the types of foods and then C, working on fixing those underlying processes. So then we can bring those carbs back in. And you're right. When it comes to something like mold toxicity, I mean, that can be a really tricky one. So can a handful of these. I think the vast majority of, of the time, I don't find going down those sorts of routes of possibilities to be necessary. I think that while those things are potential real issues, I think a lot of times too, they can be overdiagnosed or can just be looked at as an issue, but are really just the result of a body that's not able to handle a stressor that it should be able to. And maybe that's because of chronically downregulated metabolic function and so, yeah, I, I would consider that as a, as a factor as well. And you're right. These things are hard to test and even nutrient deficiencies can be really hard to test. I mean, there's not very many markers that are reliable as far as looking at, you know, serum measures of, of nutrients. Uh, yeah. So depending on which one it is, but yeah, so, so it's, they can be tricky. And, and of course, part of the reason why, or, or part of the result of that means that we need to be doing some self-experimentation and trying different dietary strategies and see how we feel and use symptoms and other markers as, as results. But normally if, if those things are a problem, if someone's deficient in B1 and you add in some, some thiamine and they should feel a difference, but I mean, yeah, these are, it's complex. It, you know, it what do you, I just, um, gosh, I just interviewed uh, a gentleman and it's drawn, I'm drawing a blank, but, but he, he's going to be out when uh, right after right before this comes out so but i'm curious you know you hear about body set weight um as a sort of a genetic point where it's almost like a thermostat in your house where you know you set it for 70 and you know we all we all know sort of like oh you know we have this certain weight that we're comfortable at um and moving that and getting that body set weight down can be very trivial and tough for individuals because you tend to yo-yo diet and come right back up to that weight that body set weight um, and he was mentioning that he believes it's 75% genetics, 25% environment. I'm just curious to know your thoughts around body set weight and how to potentially, if someone's been, um, you know, let's just say 30, 40 pounds overweight their whole lives and they, yo and they yo-yo united, what would be some, some ways to get that done other than just saying, okay, let's just get focused on insulin. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough distinction to make. So I certainly think there are hereditary components without a doubt right. and people have different body types and you know are more kind of prone toward different shapes but that also doesn't mean that it's purely genetic and that it's not affected by the environment or the environment of prior generations and we see like i do you know we do see evidence of certain environmental factors and i don't mean environment is just like a pesticide but you know availability of different types of foods or lack of availability of different foods leading to an increased incidence of diabetes generations later I think there's some some evidence of that with Holocaust survivors. And uh, so I don't think there's such a clear separation between what's hereditary and genetic versus what's environment. But I do think that we are given some amount of a starting point, of course. Mm -hmm, yeah. And that, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, no, because I, I the rhetoric uh, I know with just even talking with like Dr. Jason Fung is to order to get that body set way down we have to focus on getting insulin down. 
And it seems like a very simplistic way of going about things. And I guess what would be your answer? You know, I'm sure it's all, it could maybe it could be a really long answer, but um, what would be like a quick way of answering? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the idea that that increased insulin equals increased fat gain, I think is is erroneous. I don't think that that's a fair starting point or an accurate starting point. And there's some great papers looking at the carb. It's called the carb insulin model of obesity. This idea that more carbs equals more insulin equals more body fat and creating, you know, providing some very good, clear evidence that it's not that simple. Uh, there's a, a study that I will reference from, or that I reference often from Kevin Hall. It's a metabolic word study. Looks at a very low carbohydrate diet versus very low fat diet or low carb versus low fat diet. And the low carb, low carb, low carb versus high carb or low carb versus low. F- <laughs> it's low carb, high fat versus high, f- high carb, low fat. Okay. Gotcha. And in the low carb, high fat diet, they have all the changes you'd expect much higher levels of fat burning. They become fat burners, uh, much lower levels of insulin. And you see the opposite in the other one, right? They're in the high carb group. They're burning a lot more carbs and their insulin's a lot higher. Uh, but what they found is that in the high carb group, they lost more body fat and less lean mass than in the uh, high fat group. So despite having less insulin, or sorry, despite having, well, I guess depends which way you want to put it. Despite having higher insulin, they uh, lost more fat. Or in the other way, despite having low insulin, they lost less fat and they lost more lean mass. And I think that just, and there's a, this is not like a, a unique study where every other study is showing something different. I mean, this is, there, there's quite a bit of evidence against this, this very simplistic idea that it is just insulin equals fat gain. And that's in part for a couple of reasons. One is that when we're carbs are not the only thing that cause fat gain, like that can become fat, fat that we take in can become body fat. And normally when someone's on a higher carb diet, the, if they're gaining body fat, it's not from the carbs. It's because they're using those carbs and they're actually storing the body fat, storing the, the dietary fat as body fat. And I think this is one of those things that came out of this underlying assumption that low carb is better. So let's kind of fit all these other things around it. But the, th- the thing is that insulin is not required for f- fat to be taken up in the fat stores. So you can still be taking up free fatty acids and triglycerides in the fat stores without insulin, and you can be storing those as body fat. And so there's nothing to say that higher low insulin means you're storing less fat. There's nothing to say that higher low insulin means that you're releasing less fat either. There's a lot of regulatory steps going on. And I, and to reduce it to that, I, I think at this point is largely, I mean, there's a lot of evidence against it. Uh, does that, like all of that being said, does that mean that someone who's insulin resistant has high insulin, that that's a good thing, that that state is a good state? No, of course, I'm not saying that that's a good state to be in. But I would say it's not caused by high insulin. The high insulin is a symptom. It's an effect of the state. Okay. Got it. And let's touch on a famous uh, a topic that's been talked about a lot if you if in the health is the Randall cycle. <laughs> sure. Um, we don't have to go crazy in the detail. We can keep it just so, you know, fairly basic, just so people understand what that is. Um and sort of I know Paul Saldino's done our done some thing some excuse me some podcasts on it, but what is maybe explain what the Randall effect is and um, how it can maybe explain what the root cause of diabetes is. 
Yeah. So it's, it's normally called the Randall cycle, but as you were saying, it's or suggesting it's not actually a cycle. It's more of just an effect. Okay. And the, what it basically says is that when a cell is oxidizing or using fat, it's burning fat, it's going to block the burning of carbohydrates and then vice versa. If a cell is burning carbohydrate, it's going to be blocking the burning of, of fat. And there's a lot of details there, detailed mechanisms, all sorts of things, which, you know, are important and, um, you know, worth looking into. Right. And, uh, but the, sometimes what it's used to suggest is that we shouldn't be eating carbs and fats together because the cell can't burn both at the same time. And I would say that that is, there's a couple of reasons why that's not the case. Uh, so for one is that the Randall cycle, again, it does suggest that a cell can only be burning one fuel at a time, but that doesn't mean that your body can't be burning multiple fuels at a time. And normally our bodies are pretty good at burning the fuels that they're given. So the, another way of saying that, again, there's good research to support that the food quotient is, or the respiratory quotient, I should say, is dictated by the food quotient. So what that means is when we're talking about respiratory quotient, it's, the, it's a proxy marker that's used to determine the amount of carb versus fat burning. Basically what they find is that the ratio of carbs and fats that you take in affects the ratio of carbs and fats that you burn. And, um, and that's a, you know, a pretty simple idea. And the reason for that is because you can be taking in both fuels and different tissues can be burning both at the same time. So you can have a brain that's burning glucose and muscles at rest that are burning fat. Those things can be happening at the same time. And there can be mixes all throughout all sorts of different tissues. So there's nothing inherent to the Randall effect that suggests that we shouldn't be consuming both carbs and fats at the same time. And if you wanted to also create a, a simplistic idea in terms of like, again, just a real quick counterpoint, if you were to take in a hundred units of carbs, a hundred units of fat or 50 of each, and let's just assume all else equal, let's assume you burn them the same way. The Randall effect doesn't say anything about the, the fact that just because you're only burning carbs, you burn through those hundred units immediately, or because you're only burning fat, you burn through that hundred units immediately. But if you had 50, 50, now all of a sudden there's going to be huge fat storage. There's still a huge dictating piece here is how many units are being burned, how many units are being used for energy. And that's dependent on so many other factors. So it's a long way of saying is that this is, I think a, and, and this is a way that it can be misapplied. The Randall effect, um, not something that Paul Saldina was, was doing. I know you were referencing yeah, him. He wasn't saying it this way. Yeah. A few other people, I think maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the, what I would say, and you were suggesting, what is the role here in terms of diabetes? So there are some important points. And so one is that when there are, when there's quote excess or there's large amounts of fat burning, it will impair our ability to burn those carbohydrates. And so in a state of diabetes, that's largely what you see, you see, and this is not unique to diabetes. You see this also in virtually, virtually any state where our metabolism is blocked uh, to some level inhibited due to the various factors we talked about. So you see it in fatty liver disease as well, very clearly, where there's this large upregulation of fat burning because we're not burning the glucose well. And then you see high blood sugar. And that's because we're relying so heavily on this fat burning that when we're taking the carbs in, they aren't able to be utilized effectively in the cell. And so that's leading to at least one of the factors leading to uh, high blood sugar in those states. There's other factors as well. Um, so the blood sugar is high. It's not because of the ingesting the glucose it's because the liver is pumping out excess glucose because it's damaged and you can't properly metabolize the glucose in your bloodstream 
Is this correct? Yeah, the the way I would kind of kind of in chronological order, if you want to think of it that way, I would say the cells can't use the glucose effectively to burn energy, so they shift to fat. That leads to a stress state because they're they're not getting the energy they need. That leads to the stress hormone production you mentioned. So that's going to lead to glucose output from the liver, uh, the gluconeogenesis you were mentioning. Because we're relying on the fat oxidation, we can't burn the fat, the glucose well. That glucose that's getting produced is staying in the blood and leading to high blood sugar. It's not getting taken up by the cells, which can't use it. They're, that uptake is being blocked by the fat oxidation. And there are, and then if you consume carbs, it kind of adds to that problem. And there's of course some details here, but that's kind of like a, a basic idea of, of what's going on in those states. Okay. Cool. Yeah. That's, that's good to know. Cause I keep hearing it come up and I wanted to just touch, I know you, if anyone wants to learn more about the Randall cycle, I know you and, and your, your buddy, Mike, who you do your podcast with. And, um, the third guy who you guys do your own, what's his name? Uh, Danny Roddy. Yeah. yeah. What's the name of that podcast? Yeah. So that's called the bioenergetic helpline. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. I know you guys talked about that. I was listening to some of it. It, it gets, that really gets into detail. If people want to learn more about that. Um, Let's just to finish up, let's just touch on how ways people can maybe improve gut health, reduce endotoxins, um, and let's come up with some things they can do. One of them, perhaps maybe removing gluten. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, so, so I think it's a great topic. And, and so the first thing I would say is let's get rid of the worst offenders. Right. That's going to be the high anti-nutrient foods the ones that are really hard to digest. And that's going to be raw vegetables, especially raw leafy greens, uh, nuts and seeds, Seed whole grains. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And, and so all of those are going to contain a lot of those anti-nutrients and gluten is one of those anti-nutrients found in, in wheat, which is a grain. And so reducing the, those, especially the whole grains, especially the unprocessed whole grains. So if we're not soaking and sprouting or fermenting them, which helps to reduce the anti-nutrients, and also raw leafy greens and nuts and seeds. That's going to normally be a huge factor. Legumes as well. So I'm going to be a huge factor for gut issues. You know, I can't tell you how many people will see those things clear up dramatically, the bloating and gas and things like that, just by reducing some of those worst offenders. Uh, so yeah, I would say that's that's step one. And and reducing the polyunsaturated fats is a is a big one as well. They they don't create, they aren't as directly or uniquely, uniquely damaging with their, with anti-nutrients, but the polyunsaturated fats alone are, are normally enough to, to cause some inflammation in the intestines. Okay. So remove, remove gluten lectins, which are in vegetable, a lot of raw vegetables, right? Um, also remove seed oils, also reducing stress can help with gut health, right? That's a big one. Um, and then from there, you want to introduce nutrients, right? You want to eat nutrients that support gut health. Um, you know, this obviously, you know, I always talk about high nutrient dense foods. What are some of the foods and nutrients that you like to, I know everyone's a little bit different and, you know, obviously a lot of people are probably lacking in B vitamins or vitamin D and even vitamin A. Um, so what type of foods, you know, obviously I, we, I've, I had a, did a podcast on beef liver I'm not saying you have to have liver every day, but I think it's, it's a good thing to implement from time to time. Um, but what some, what are some of the other foods maybe that, that you like to implement for nutrients? Yeah, there are, 
I mean, I think we want to be centering our diet around nutrient-dense foods and nutrient-dense not only being micronutrient, but also macronutrient-dense, meaning that they have the carbs, fats, and proteins that, that we need to provide our body the building blocks, the fuel to, to function well. And so normally I'm centering that around good quality uh, animal-based protein sources that are low in PUFA. So lean away from most fatty pork and fatty chicken, unless it's grown superbly well, which is very rare right. because those are super high sources of PUFA, the fat in those. You can always get the leaner cuts though. So, you know, a chicken breast without the skin or like some pork chops and things are going to be lower in PUFA, even if they're not raised perfectly well because they're low fat options. Um, also, you know, ruminant meat, so beef and bison and goat and uh, lamb are all going to be great sources, very highly saturated fats. And you were touching on the organ meats, which are great, whether it's liver, kidney, you know, on from there, those are all, all very nutrient dense. And you're seeing this. So a very, um, protein, uh, somewhat protein centric, um, animal based, um, proteins, um, that are high in nutrient density. And then, you know, people are like, well, what carbs, you know, I can't have plants. I can't have grains. <laughs> and, and I, I, I got, I remember getting away from like, I remember eating cereal back in the day and just getting away from that. Cause I was like bloated of beyond belief. I haven't had cereal in probably 20 years, but you know, this is why I think you're seeing some people in the carnivore space implement fruit because it's the least to toxic of the carbs it can be digested very easily. Um, would you agree with that? And, and, and any other carb sources, maybe that if people want to implement, I know you, you might tubers or things like that. Yeah. Just, just to round out the, the protein sources real yeah. quick, I would just add also low PUFA seafood. I know high, high omega-3 seafood is, is often still recommended. And I would personally lean away from that. Maybe we can talk about issues with the omega-3s as well, but. Oh, wow. That could be another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're so like wild salmon. You, you not a fan. Correct. Yeah. I oh would. And there's a lot of low, there's a lot of low fat seafood, right? So, uh, like cod, mahi, mahi, uh, I want to say grouper, halibut, uh, tuna. Of course, you want to be careful of heavy metals, but yeah. th there's a lot of low fat options. Uh, salmon is salmon and like Chilean sea bass. There's a couple others that are high fat, but most fish are actually not. And the reason, what if you're getting that salmon from a really good source? You're still not a fan. So I'm not a fan of the omega-3s and the salmon's going to be very high in fat, very high in PUFA, uh, which normally there's a lot of focus on the omega-6s, but the omega-3s are also a polyunsaturated fat and I would say carry with them largely the same issues that uh, you just knocked out half my wife and I's diet right there. <laughs> oh my God, I got to call her after this is done. Sorry. Oh no. <laughs> we won't stop eating salmon. We get, we get okay. it from a really good source. I actually had the CEO of Cetopia and they make sushi great. It's unbelievable. If you, and, and you can, you can, um, it's not just all salmon. There's a lot of mix of different things, but it's all sushi grade. And it's actually farm raised. But they farm raise mm -hmm. in an environment that it that it should be that the the fish should be eating the correct diet. It's actually a pretty neat company, out of California. But yeah, um, yeah go ahead. And I'd be curious. Maybe it's lower fat. Maybe it's grown in, in a better environment and lower fat. Normally, it's just the nature of it. It tends to be higher fat as a. Cold so you're just saying fish. because of the high PUFA of the the salmon's and the the, the fishes that are fattier, that's that can be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of the fish oils either, or just omega-3s in general. What about uh, like, again, sard oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. 
I was just going to say, it doesn't mean like we should absolutely never eat these things. <laughs> yeah. I just don't think the omega-3s are ideal. Yeah, because omega-3s get talked about so much. Um, that could be a whole other podcast, but we'll 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 go maybe another time on that. Uh, but um, okay, so 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 animal organs, obviously, if you can add those in time to time, obviously grass-fed, grass-finished meat, um, shellfish. Yeah, shellfish is great. Oysters, mussels, clams, eggs. There are some crustaceans in there, shrimp, lobster. Um, and did you say eggs? Yeah. What are your thoughts yeah, on eggs? eggs? And, okay. Eggs are great. Um, they are going to be, uh, you know, they've got a bit of poof up, but I mean, um, I, not enough that I would be concerned about it at all. Um, especially if they're, if they're pasture raised, you know, good quality eggs, the conventionally raised ones can be, I want to say as much as 20, 30% poof. So I would say it's an area where it's good to get important to get good quality. And then you got to be careful with chicken, turkey, and pork, which is something that my wife and I really don't eat much. Occasionally we'll get some chicken, but that'll be pasture raised. Obviously try to make it to get it from a quality source. Yeah. And I mean, the labeling and uh, it's difficult yeah. with all those foods. So yeah, I would just say you want to investigate it, you know, for a lot of the pork, for example, they'll talk about it being pastured and acorn fed acorns are super high in PUFA. You know, they might be given very high PUFA feed still. So um, yeah, you just want to be aware of those things. Same thing with, with chickens, you know, you uh, don't want it to be vegetarian fed, right? You want it to be pastured, eating lots of bugs and um, shrubbery and things. And, yeah. Um, and then dairy, I would say is another great, very nutrient dense source as well for uh, whether it's, you know, milks, cheeses, butter, butter's not going to be quite as nutrient dense. But... Have you ever had raw milk before? Yeah. 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 There's a farm like 45 minutes from me. I, I would go every Saturday because literally there's a line out the door for the raw dairy. Um, so it's, yeah, and it's normally pretty expensive too. <laughs> yeah, it can be, it can be. Yeah. And you don't want it to sit on the shelf for that long. So, <laughs> right. Um, another thing that I've heard a little bit in sort of the bioenergetic and the, the, sort of the Ray Pete environment that, that you're, you're in is the raw carrots. Mm. What, what is the, what is the, um, the big thing with raw carrots that you guys yeah. So just, I don't know, if, just in case listeners are, are <laughs> upset that we haven't gone back to the carb sources, uh, I'll maybe touch on oh, those real quick. That's right. Yes. Well, we did hit some of them, mainly fruit, and then go ahead. You could hit on the rest of them. Yeah. Yeah. Ripe fruit, honey, maple syrup, I think are all great options. I would also throw in other forms of fruit. So that could be dried fruit or fruit juices, you know, frozen fruits, things like that. Uh, we could talk about whether juice is a good idea or not. And, you know, maybe we'll, we'll, Spend like a minute or, on that. Orange, orange juice. Yeah, orange, pineapple, grape, pomegranate. I mean, there's a ton of options. Uh, what Some of the best things about juice are that it's normally ripe year-round, especially if it's pasteurized because they're getting it from ripe fruit at whatever season it was in. And a lot of times it's hard to find ripe fruit, especially in the States, you know, for a large portion of the year. So that's one, one good thing with the fruit juice. And uh, it's basically, you know, constantly available quality. And also the concentration. If somebody has high carb needs, it can be pretty hard to do that when you're talking berries and and melons and things that are really filling. I, I, I was going to mention that. Yeah, like I'm, I've been implementing some more, more carbs and I've, I've been tracking it, and it is it is difficult. You know, if you're having berries and, like you mentioned, um, raspberries, blueberries, things like that. It, so, go ahead. Yeah. So so orange juice is probably a quick and easy way. Do you have any, and I meant to ask you this earlier, any like, um, what about mixing foods? Any, I know you, 
you we talked about mixing carbs and fats and that you don't believe that's an issue. Anything with mixing fruit with anything, or is that all good? So there's some things to consider, uh, when, when it comes to, so on one hand on the carb metabolism side, if somebody is not as efficiently oxidizing carbs and it can be helpful to have slower trickles, slower digesting, um, carb sources or slower absorbing carb sources. And so what that would mean is maybe leaning away from honey or fruit juice, especially on their own. And that means maybe leaning toward more of the whole fruit, um, or at the very least having the honey or, or fruit juice with a meal or after a meal, before a meal, something like that. So it's mixed with the fat and protein to help the digestion slow down a little bit. Um, but in someone who's really efficiently metabolizing carbohydrates and has high needs and everything, I, normally having some fruit juice on its own should be okay. Uh, again, it's going to depend on the individual. And so, so that would be some of the main thoughts on the carb tolerance side, of course, also wanting to adjust the, the amount, right. And it's going to vary between the individual. And I would say one other category of carbs that I would, that I suggest often is well-cooked roots and tubers, potatoes, sweet potatoes, uh, any sort of root vegetables, you mentioned carrots, parsnips, whatever it is. Um, I also Not think there's benefit to raw carrots too. But. Raw carrots. And then, uh, for, for sweet potato and baked potato, like obviously just getting them and getting organic getting it from a good source and and what do you typically like just bake them uh you, do you can, put butter on it do you put butter yeah on your i think so i think pairing the starches with the saturated fats really helpful for their digestion i would also not eat the skin of the roots and tubers because there are anti-nutrients there and it's generally not very digestible oh, that's the best part <laughs> <laughs> It's easy for me to say I never liked the skin so much. Although they always say all the nutrients are in the skin. Although maybe that's they say that more it's, for like apples. But well, and they say that for grains and all that too. It's all, all on the whole grain. That's where all the nutrients are. That's why you don't want it processed. But those nutrients are bound up with, you know, phytic acid, oxalic acid, and things like that. And and so you do have some of those issues with the the root vegetables too. So I would lean away from the skins, and uh, yeah, I think you can you can boil them, bake them, saute them. I mean. It, I would say you do want to have a fat source with it. Typically it does help with the digestion and taste too. So, so steak and baked potato is fine by you. There you go. I mean, that doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so you mentioned mixed meals and I, I just to add a, another piece, there is the digestion component. And so one thing that tends not to go very well is having like a huge plate of watermelon and then trying to have a steak at least from my perspective or for most people, it's, it's like, you're, you're very full. you you're kind of diluting your stomach acid and some other digestive juices with a lot of water, a lot of liquid, and then trying to add a steak on that. So that's, again, it all depends on the individual, but normally I would, I would try to separate those a little bit, maybe for having a really watery fruit, I might have that away from like a heavy dense protein meal. Um, or maybe just like 15 minutes before it's kind of like an appetizer, or maybe after as a, as a dessert or something like that. Um, a couple few, three more things. Uh, so the raw carrots, do you like them because they help remove endotoxins in the gut? Is, is there been some, um, studies regarding that? Yeah. So it's helpful to have some fiber sources to promote the growth of healthy bacteria. It's also helpful to have some fiber sources to help move, get like a good motility to prevent the growth of or excess growth of bacteria and a huge component when it comes to all plant foods is the polyphenols. So whether we're talking about root vegetables or fruits or even raw vegetables, I just don't think we want those for other reasons. 
their their densities polyphenols that give them their color and have all sorts of effects. And normally, I would say, you know, polysaladino, for example, is not a fan of these in high amounts because of their potentially toxic effects and hormetic effects when they're consumed and absorbed in high doses. But most of them are not actually very well absorbed. Instead, especially when we're just consuming them in food with fiber, it helps to prevent the absorption of a lot of those polyphenols and it carries them to the large intestine where they have mild antimicrobial effects. So they slow the growth of certain bacteria or prevent the growth of certain bacteria. They can actually kill off some, some harmful bacteria and tend to do it in a pretty remarkable way where they tend only to benefit the good ones and tend only to kill off or reduce the harmful ones. And you're talking about carrots. Not only carrots, but polyphenols from berries yeah. or fruits or, or anything like that. Um, the nice thing about a carrot, a raw carrot or radishes, uh, bamboo shoots, is that they have certain fibers that are going to help them get to the large intestine. Plus, they have the polyphenols that also are going to come with and help as kind of a very, very mild antibiotic sort of effect. And, um, and you can also add olive oil or coconut oil, vinegar, which also have some parallel antimicrobial effects and help to sort out the the balance of bacteria in the large intestine. So it's an easy and sometimes pretty effective way to improve gut motility and support gut health and even help with the excretion of certain um, certain toxic things that we excrete in our bile, which includes estrogens. So it can actually help to lower our systemic estrogen uh, availability and prevent it from being reabsorbed. So having some sources of uh, like that, like a raw carrot can be it, it is a raw carrot. Does it not have as many anti-nutrients as, cause it's, um, as obviously some of the other vegetables that you mentioned. Yeah. So when we're talking anti-nutrients and vegetables, the leafy greens are by far the worst, uh, with carrots, there's going to be a very small amount in there. And, uh, again, ideally not very well absorbed and, and, um, with the fiber being carried to the large intestine. Uh, you know, we have this kind of culinary idea of fruits and vegetables, but when you actually look at the foods, it's not that simple. So like a bell pepper, for example, is actually a fruit and normally I would say is, is fine to eat raw or cooked. And, you know, the same thing with like tomatoes, uh, again, there can be some issues in people who are particularly sensitive to nightshades, for example, right. but for the most part, they tend to be very low on the anti-nutrients and, uh, not to cause issues. Do you ever have uh, kimchi? I've had That's sauerkraut. I don't know if I ever tried the, <laughs> the kimchi. I used to do a homemade got, sauerkraut. Back oh, in the day nice. And, okay. Yeah, uh, fermented vegetables like kimchi, I'm not a huge... They, a lot of them have a, like chili pepper in them and they could be pretty... Uh, I'm, I'm like a wimp when it comes to that stuff, but um, I know people who, who really love that. But um, Yeah, living in Latin America, you definitely... You're, Spice tolerance definitely <laughs> increases. Quite oh, yeah, that's right. You get all that those types of food. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's pretty much everything I wanted to touch on. I mean, um, yeah, we're going to do another part two with Dr. Dom D'Agostino. Uh, mm -hmm. So look out for that. And uh, Jay, where's the best place for people to you know read and learn about your your activities? Yeah. So just real quick, as far as the fermented foods go, I, oh, yeah. I will say I normally don't actually recommend those as much. I would normally lean toward supporting our microbiome with the fibers from fruits and root vegetables and those polyphenols and allowing those to shape our microbiome as opposed to, especially with the commercially the commercial fermented foods where you're adding in all these cultures and just kind of it's the equivalent of taking a probiotic. And I tend not to go that route. I think 
we want to let our foods create the healthy microbiome as opposed to trying to superimpose it into that uh, state. Yeah. And that's a good point. And, and just to, to rehash the main things that we talked about regarding reducing endotoxin was just cutting out a lot of the things that could be causing harm first, like removing gluten, lectins, um, what else? Seed oils, uh, reducing stress. And then, and then once, you know, he, once the gut is some, and that's why, you know, like you mentioned, fasting can play a role in heal and in, in gut health as well. And then add in, you know, these nutrients that can help support it that we talked about. Yeah. And there are further steps, right? Some people they'll try to bring some of these foods in and we'll have symptoms of, of endotoxin production and gut bacterial toxin production. They'll have bloating or things like that. And that's a sign that Maybe there's issues higher up with the actual breakdown of those foods, the actual digestion of the digestion. Maybe there's issues with the absorption. Maybe there's a major bacterial imbalance that is not going to be solved just by clearing out some of the harmful ones. And you might need to, you know, look to certain supplements to help clear things out. Maybe you'll need to look to a SIBO test. I mean, it depends on the context, but there is a place as well where addressing those issues can be, can require some extra steps. Excellent. Okay. Well, we've touched on a lot. Uh, <laughs> what jfeldmanwellness.com, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. My website's jfeldmanwellness.com. I do a yeah. podcast called, or I have a podcast called the Energy Balance Podcast. And then you mentioned earlier, I also do a, a separate podcast called the Bioenergetic Helpline. But kind of my main main one is the Energy Balance Podcast and a uh, ton of articles and, and all that information can be found on my website, which is jfeldmanwellness.com. And I do also have a free mini course for your listeners that talks through some basics as far as maybe what we want to look to in terms of macronutrient intake, how stress is involved, how exercise plays in here, and how we can basically orient our lives, our environment, the things that we're giving our bodies to fix those energy producing processes and use that as our, as our jumping off point to improve our health. And so listeners can find that free mini course at jfeldmanwellness.com energy. Awesome. Excellent. Yeah. I'll put links in the show notes for that. And, uh, Jay, I appreciate you coming on and, and I, I think the, the listeners will get a ton of value from today. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Brian. I appreciate it. And we didn't have a mini earthquake, so everything was good. <laughs> success. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Jay. Thanks for listening to the get lean, eat clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.